Can we pray together? Let's pray. Lord, truly, we turn our eyes to you. There's no one that deserves our worship, our attention more than you. Oh God, we're overwhelmed by your kindness to us to save lost sinners and bring us to your table, bring us to fellowship with you. And so God, we come before you this morning and just thank you for your great kindness to us in Christ. Truly, Lord, our hearts are filled and warmed by knowing that you have taken sin from us and in place, given us your righteousness. God, I pray for anyone this morning that doesn't know that, Lord, that you would, today would be the first day that they look to you in faith and turn from their sin to the glories that you are and all that you provide for us. And so, Lord, we lift these um, to you. Father, we don't just pray for ourselves, but for other churches. We lift up Baptist Chapel this morning in Lansing, that you would be with them as they meet, Lord, that you would encourage them. Father, for other churches in our network, we pray for Redeeming Grace Church down in Green Acres, Florida. We thank you for Pastor Jarvis and that we're able to get behind the work of Redeeming Grace and to support and encourage Lord, these early days of that church plant, and Lord, we pray that it would succeed, that Lord, you would uh, just fertilize the soil around them, Lord, that you would bring encouragement to Jarvis and his um, associates there, Lord, that you would bring more people to Christ, and Lord, that you would encourage them, that you would bring fruit to their gospel ministry, Lord, that you would encourage them in their uh, hospitality program as they seek to use uh, hospitality as the the forefront of the front door, as it were, to share the gospel with other people. Lord, that you would bring fruit from that. Lord, that you would encourage Jarvis in these days. Lord, we pray also for the persecuted church around the world. We lift up the persecuted church in Venezuela this morning, that you would be with them, as we know that many uh, have uh, tried to uh, hide, Lord, in their um, faith and fear of reprisals from um, other uh, just um, our armed forces, Lord, that are against um, uh, the church, Lord, and Lord, particularly in rural places that you would guard and protect them from drug lords and others that would seek to um, snuff out Christianity and snuff out uh, the sharing of the gospel in those areas. Lord, we pray for your grace there and that you draw many to yourself. Father, we are not ignorant to pray for uh, the unreached peoples of the world. Oh God, our Hearts break as we go into another Easter season when there's many around the world that have never heard of you. And while we celebrate your resurrection, there's many that have never heard of it. And God, we pray for the Berber people of Algeria this morning in North Africa, that you would bring missionaries to them, that you would bring um, Bible translators to them, Lord, that you would, in your grace, uh, bring people to faith in Christ from that people group in this generation, oh God, that you would show your mercy. God, we lift up many that are hurting. We lift up the war in Ukraine that, Lord, has taken so many lives. Would you show your grace, O oh God, that you would bring an end to that conflict in your time. But, Lord, we know from your word that you are accomplishing things that we cannot understand in the purpose of war, that you um, are doing your will in the nations. And so we ask for your help there. Oh God, we lift up the refugees in many places, uh, from Afghanistan and from Syria and Turkey and other places um, that, are, that are happening, um, even from the um, earthquakes, Lord, in Syria and Turkey, there's many refugees that are looking for homes and other places to go to during this rebuilding process that you would show your grace. God, would you draw your um, presence around uh, those who are grieving in Nashville, Lord, after this uh, shooting this last week. Oh, God, would you be around um, uh, the pastor of that church who lost his daughter, and Lord, that you would be with those who are grieving as they have memorial services this week. Father, that you would be around even those that are uh, in the family of the shooter, that Lord, you would draw them to, to you, and that you would bring great comfort as only you can, and to bring hope out of this horrible situation. God, that we would not forget to pray for them. God, we pray for those who are suffering from these tornadoes and have lost uh, material possessions, but also loved ones. Oh, God, would you uh, just bind up their hearts? God, as first responders are 
still searching for people and as uh, missions organizations uh, arrive to bring aid uh, and government agencies, would you give them wisdom, God? Lord, we thank you for um, the response of Samaritan's Purse, that you'd be with them as well as they're on the ground. And uh, Lord, that you would provide for all those that are uh, in great need. Father, would you be with those that are grieving? Um, as we um, go into this Easter season, it often brings back memories of those who are not with us, that you would uh, help us in that process as well. Father, uh, would you be with the sick? Um, Lord, we just lift up many who are uh, not feeling well and that are under the weather. We lift up uh, Ken and Kitty Lawrence this morning, that you would be with them as they are uh, just getting over uh, their sicknesses. Uh, Father, I pray for my own two youngest, that you'd be with them as they get over their colds and um, just feeling under the weather. God, we pray um, that you would uh, continue to work uh, in and through all the situations that uh, come into our lives, including sickness, that you would use these things for our good. Uh, Lord, we pray for uh, Joy Riggs. Lord, we thank you for the healing that you've brought her uh, after surgery. And Lord, that you would continue to give her strength and wisdom as she tries to get back to work, that you would help her not to overdo it, that you would give her wisdom there. Father, we pray for our expectant mothers, that you would be with them, that you would uh, continue their pregnancies to be healthy, and Lord, that their deliveries would be without complication. We thank you for new life in the womb, and we thank you for these families and how um, it's just a new uh, part of the journey for them as they become parents, that God, you would save these children in your time as they hear the gospel from their parents and from uh, this church, that, Lord, you would work in their lives in such a way as to, to work healing um, in their lives, but uh, even more spiritual life uh, to their um, uh, needy souls. And so, Father, we pray for that. Father, we have had word from um, a dear lady in Boone that has lost her baby uh, after a, a hard um, delivery and I pray that you would be with her in her loss, but also that you spared her life, and we thank you for that. And as we uh, pray for her that, and, and reach out to her this week, Lord, that you would bring healing, and um, Lord, that you would give wisdom uh, in that, and so that you would show your grace to this family, Lord, that is grieving. And so we thank you for them, Lord, and ask for your help there. God, we lift up Christ alone to you. Lord, we thank you for them. Um, our church plant down in Wilkes County. God, would you be with Pastor Tim and Cindy? Uh, help Tim this morning, Lord, as he's recovering from sickness, that you would give him strength to preach this morning, that you would give um, them endurance this last week to get the final things together um, in um, having their first public service, Lord, um, on Easter. And so, Lord, would you grant that, we pray, and, and put all these loose ends together, God, that uh, they're so desperately wanting to see uh, before uh, Easter Sunday. We thank you for all that you've done in uh, working that, Lord, to, to your glory ultimately, that you would go ahead of this church and um, use her for uh, your gospel purposes in, in uh, Wilkes County. Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, would you help us? Oh God, we know your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, and so help us as we look to it um, to hear from you and to be encouraged by you and that we could walk out of here different than we walked in, thinking on you and rejoicing in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. I trust each of you are doing well in the Lord. We are glad to have you this morning that we're able to worship together. We're going to continue our uh, study in Genesis today. Uh, we will be taking a break next week uh, for Easter as we uh, take a look at Luke 24. Um, so we look forward to that time together um, on Easter, and then we'll pick back up with the rest of chapter 11, Lord willing, the week after uh, Easter on the 16th. But uh, I hope that you are uh, growing and learning here in the book of Genesis. I know it is a long journey for us, but uh, to, to look at the positive side, we're a fifth of the way through uh, the book. And so uh, keep your seatbelts on. We have a long journey uh, ahead. Would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? We're going to be reading verses 1 through 9 from Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. This is God's word. Now the whole earth 
had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said one to another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord there confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. This ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. As we look at this text this morning, perhaps you have thought about the process of building something. From children's earliest ages on into our adulthood, we enjoy hobbies of building things, whether that be models or playing with Lincoln Logs or Legos. We like to construct things. It's part of how God put us together as his image bearers to create things out of nothing or rather from the things that he has created, putting them together. Whether that is in the small context of playing with Play-Doh all the way up to uh, architecture, God reveals himself and his creativity through humankind and his work of creation, his works of creation as it were. And so as we look at this text, some very interesting things come out of this text. First of all, the pride of man, which we'll look at here in verses 1 through 5, and really the ability of man, and so there's a sinful side, but also a a God-created side that is quite natural that uh, Moses brings our attention to here in um, Genesis. And then secondly, we want to look at the issue of God's patience and ultimately his plan that he unfolds here in this text. And so we want to walk through this and make some application at the end. So take a look here at the context that we've been looking at. We have just gone through the descendants of Noah and that genealogy that we looked at last week, mainly in three different categories. First of all, we looked at Japheth's family, and then we looked at Ham's family, and looked at Shem's family, and how the descendants of the earth would come out of these three families, ultimately out of Noah. It's also interesting that we noted that there's 70 names here. And in these 70 names, there's feathered in great details about not only the rest of the New Testament or the rest of the Old Testament, let alone the New Testament that is in seed form here. In what God is giving us is really his progressive plan of redemption for uh, his ultimate glory and for a people that will bring much praise to him in all the earth. And so when we look at this, I want to bring us, bring our attention to multiple things. So I'll be having you look back to chapter 10 just by way of reference. First of all, look at verse 1 in chapter 11. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now some of us might be confused because last week we were looking at chapter 10 and we saw here that there was many language groups that would come out of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Not to be confused, this was more of a summarization of what now Moses is going to explain in transition to chapter 12 when we go from the large down to the minute with a call to Abram. So here, notice that the whole world had one language and the same words. 
And this is an important thing to note because up to this time in Genesis, there has been one language. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But from Adam and Eve on to Noah, and then even after and following Noah, mankind spoke the same language. You think about how easy it would be to work together in trade today with we took, if we took down the very fact that we had language barriers. Now, we've sought to overcome this even in our day through all kinds of technology and translation resources and so on and so forth that ultimately we can almost now have a mediated conversation through technology to translate our very words on the spot. It's amazing some of the technology we have today that is still seeking to overcome the very curse of Babel. But notice here that they had one language and that necessarily wasn't a problem. But look at verse 2. We not just have language, but notice their location in verse 2. As the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, going back to chapter 10, if you remember, Shinar is mentioned as a place that was developed. Now, the reason I bring our attention to that is because this location is important. When we looked at really the two lines of Shem that we looked at last week, and I brought attention to the name Joktan, not only is that my favorite name in this genealogy, but it's an important name because there's 14 names that come from, that uh, end really, uh, or come out of Joktan and end at Babel if you notice in chapter 10. And then secondly, there's 14 names coming out of Peleg's kingdom that end with um, coming down to the, uh, the dealing with Abraham, which we'll look at in chapter 12. And this is important to note because there's really two factions here that are happening. Also to pay attention here in location is the context of the east. It's been a, a theme that we see all the way from the beginning of Genesis, actually. We see that when Adam and Eve sinned, remember, they went east of Eden. When Cain sinned, he fled east to what would be Babylon eventually. Lot, when he divided with Abraham, which we'll see in the future chapters of Genesis, he goes east to the infamous Sodom and Gomorrah. These two lines, one leading to the promised land and the other leading east. In other words, this picture of leading away from God's blessing, God's original purposes, it's going east. Just by way of observation, it's very interesting in the New Testament that when the gospel goes forth, God in his providence brings the uh, gospel to all peoples. We know that, but mainly the thrust was west. It's just interesting to note. So not only do we see language here, not only do we see location, but notice verse 3, their labors. It says, and they said to one another, notice this phrase because it's important, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then notice the second thing they say in verse 4, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Well, several things to look at here. What are their labors? First of all, um, backing up just a bit, we tend to look at Babel as kind of a, a collective work of multiple nations and a whole bunch of things going on. But even with the greatest stretch of the imagination, time-wise, when we look at the flood, there could have been as few as a thousand people that had repopulated the earth by this time. How do I know that? Well, we know that when we look backwards, we calculate these things back from the life of Abraham, we know that there hasn't been that much time that has passed between the flood and Babel. In fact, many scholars think maybe just about a hundred years and you can go back. I'm not going to do all the math for you right here. If you want to know more about that, you can see me afterwards. But we have probably more than a thousand people at this point. And that's based upon everybody having a lot of children. And so that goes back to what we saw in 
chapter 9, when God blessed, chapter 9, verse 1, that God blessed uh, Noah and his sons and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, the original command was that the same as from the beginning of Genesis, that they were to spread all over the earth. God gave us the earth to inhabit, and he called them to do the same. But notice the attitude here of these that are building. They're building, and the building itself is not necessarily the problem. But notice in uh, verse 5 and then in, um, uh, or in verse 4 and in verse 5, so that they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. And then at the end of verse um, uh, 4, it says, come, let us make a name for ourselves. And there it delivers the very truths of their pride. That this building was not in glory to God, but in fact in defiance of his commands. Just a few generations after Noah had seen the known world at that time destroyed for its violence, we see the pride of man rising up. Just an interesting note, isn't it interesting? Every time that we put to death sins in our own life, there always seems to be one that sprouts. And this is the way for Christ in his labors in us to put these things to death, that we recognize these things here even in seed form in the book of Genesis. Notice also that they're not only coming and seeking to build these things, but notice the ultimate purpose is to make a name for themselves. And they don't want to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Does anybody see the problem there? The problem is that God said for them to disperse, and they are saying, no, we want to make a name for ourselves. Is this not the human condition? Christ in his kindness beckoning to sinners to repent and in our sinfulness and our depravity, we say, no, God, we don't want you. We want our own way. And it shows the sinfulness of sin here. It shows the depravity of man. It shows the horrible situation that we all find ourselves in. And so we see here not just the language, not just their location, not just their labors, but lastly, on this first point, is their lofty opinion of themselves. And notice that there's a contrast between their will and God's will. Because if you sneak peek, we'll come back to this, but look down to verse 7. It's the same language that is used. It says, come, let us, speaking of God, in the plural, by the way, let us go down and confuse their language. In other words, God sees God knows the human plannings and cunnings of their hearts, and God is going to do something, not in reaction, but he's ultimately taking the initiative in human history. Something, such an initiative that we still feel today, just as much as we see the seasons that we looked at in chapter 9 after the flood. So every time we hear a foreign language, it should come to mind that God brought that to pass. So notice here that there's a contrast between man's will and God's will, and that these two are setting themselves against each other, and ultimately man setting himself up against God. But God is doing this in a very kind way. He doesn't destroy them like he just did uh, with the flood. He is very patient, and yet he initiates here change for his good and ultimately for his glory. And so let's now look at the patience and plan of God for our second point. Look at verse 6. It says, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. I find this fascinating as we look at this text, that first of all, we know that God is not ignorant of what men are doing. He doesn't have to come down and dwell with us to understand what we are doing or what we are going through. But I love the language here that is so personal, that he comes down to see the city. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it, it should give us remembrance of God walking with Adam in the garden. And the reason I bring this up is because there's sometimes these lofty views that we have 
of the Almighty, that he is above and beyond and transcendent, and yes, he is, but we see that he's so much separate, how could he ever know what we're going through? After all, it seems like he put creation into place and then simply backed up off of it. That would be more of a deistic view of God. But notice here, he's intimately involved. Covenant name of God is mentioned here. And he came down and he sees the tower and the children of man and what they have done. Sometimes the most embarrassing thing about our own depravity and our sin is what it builds, is what it reveals about us. And we're constantly seeing the fruit of it. But notice here in verse 6, it says, the Lord said. Do you see the... the uh, the literary, literary arrangement here in verses 1 through 4, it's all about come us, come let us build, come let us do these things, let us, let us. And then starting in verse 5, it transitions. It says, and the Lord came down, and the Lord said, and, um, and then he says, come let us. And then in verse 8, so the Lord would work these things, and then the Lord would disperse them all over the face of the earth. In other words, God's plan cannot be thwarted regardless of the opinions of men. And so they're building in this way. And so the Lord has said, behold, they are one people, they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. In other words, it's almost a foresight of what mankind would accomplish. Just a few weeks ago, my older sons and I went to Washington, D.C., and we were walking through multiple museums, and it really is just displaying the history of the United States and how God has used us in multiple places around the world to accomplish many, many, many things. But I also am amazed by our country's space program. It's amazing the billions of dollars that we have invested to know more about what is beyond us on this, uh, in this solar system. It's incredible that we have done the feats that we have. We, we've put men on the moon, that we've put probes on Mars, that we have uh, satellites that we have sent out that we didn't expect to last that are still going out to the outer rims of our galaxy and bringing back information about the created world that we live in. But what's amazing about all this is when we look at a text like this, we wonder about what mankind could have accomplished with one language if they had dispersed around the world as God had said. How much have we truncated exploration? How much have we truncated the discoveries in science? How much have we truncated all the things that we are capable of doing as humankind under a sovereign God, but we have squandered these things because of our sin. It's interesting that even in our postmodern times that we think that putting God on the back burner because it's so um, primitive to think about God that we would put science and our own reasoning at the forefront of what we do and we find ourselves again in our own depravity and our own sin and lost in our discoveries. And so here, in this generation, they're beginning all these things, and God brings this to the reader's attention. And then he says, and nothing that they pur propose to do will now be impossible for them. Isn't that an interesting phrase? God himself is saying this. The amazing potential that humankind has in creating things and building things. And that should give us hope in the sense of the future that these things are able to be accomplished, but what is killing us from the back end and killing us in the process is our lack of reconciliation to a holy God. And so, notice, this plight is brought on by the initiative of God's very words, and then in verse 7 now, brings what he's going to do. Isn't this interesting? You look at this in Genesis, for instance, what we saw with Noah. God knew and God saw the violence of Noah's day and therefore he decided that he would bring a flood and that he would bring this upon the earth and yet he still shows his grace and he, uh, Noah finds favor in his sight. And so here we see the great problems even a few generations after the flood 
And as we talked about in weeks past, these people ultimately haven't solved their sin problem. And so we see it growing again in the form of pride and arrogance and making a name for themselves. And truly this is what sin does. We want to live for ourselves. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to do what we want to do. We want to do what brings joy to us and what we think will be the best for ourselves. And then God speaks. Verse 7. He says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Isn't this interesting? It doesn't seem like a, a direct way like we saw him dealing with the flood of Noah's day. But he's still working in the midst of human reasoning. And he's working to call them to attention to a greater truth that he is God and they are not. So it, notice here in the plurality, he's saying that let us go down. Do you remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 27? We see the same language, if you flip back there at creation, back to the creation story, this is exactly what the same um, uh, thing is shown here. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Why is this so important in Genesis, this imagery? Well, first of all, as the um, image of God, God is desiring to reveal something about himself in creating man. We see this in the story of creation, but even now, post uh, the fall and post even the flood, we still see that man re reveals, even in a marred image, God's nature and God's character of creation, of building, of making a name. In fact, it's very interesting that in the context of all you look at in the Bible, that even in the book of Revelation, we see that God, in building a new Jerusalem, a great city, is not with man at the center, but one man, the man Christ Jesus, that has conquered all and has brought all nations to himself. He is worthy to have a name made for himself. And so we'll return to that thought here. But notice here that he takes decisive action to confuse their language. And they cannot understand their speech. Again, look at the outline of these nine verses. It started with their language, their location, their labors, their lofty opinion of themselves. And God is simply just responding to that in a very sovereign way. He's saying, I'm looking upon your work. And I am going to confuse your language. I'm looking at your location, and that's not where you're supposed to be. I will disperse you. I'm looking upon your labors. You're not doing the labors I told you to do, but you're doing labors that would bring much fame to you. And then lastly, he brings them low. Look at verse 7 through verse 9. He says in verse 8, sorry, he says, So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the whole earth, and they left off the building of the city. An unfinished work. In fact, just an interesting thing, when I, because I read a lot of children's books, of course, with my, my children. Most books on Genesis, I just have this pet peeve, Babel is a finished tower. And it bothers me here because it wasn't finished. So artists that actually draw an unfinished tower, I just, I love it. Um, that's just a side note. Totally has nothing to do with the sermon. Not in my notes. Just distracted. So it's awesome here to look at how God totally distracts them from their building and they cannot continue. Then in verse 9 it says, Therefore, in light of these things, its name was called Babel. Again, we know that its foundation goes back earlier in Genesis. Cain heads that direction ultimately, but it will come. And then Noah's un, I mean, Moses is unpacking this from chapter 10, that those who came out of that line of Shem were ultimately going to end up at Babel. Two people groups, two uh, directions, if you will. And so not only does he respond to this and confusing their language, but then from there the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. Now, just by way of note, we know that this is the history of the nations. 
We made note of that last week, that every one of us has genetic material descending from these three men, Shem, Ham, and Jabeth. We talked about the DNA and all the, uh, both mankind and of animals that was destroyed in the flood. But it's interesting here to think about language, culture, and even physical uh, uh, parts of our DNA that show themselves in our own lives all go back to this foundational passage of Scripture. It's interesting as these people groups definitely associated around language, culture, by way of anthropology is important, culture and even um, the looks of our cultures come from this very foundation. And why do I bring attention to that? Well, I, you know, in the current crisis of, that, that we're seeing, particularly in our nation, but the Western world concerning racism, I think it's so important for us to see here, right here in chapter 11, that there's only one race. It's the human race. And it's interesting to note here that even in the context of this human race, there's different diversity based on language, culture, and even looks of people, genetically speaking, that go all out and disperse over the face of the earth. The kingdoms of the world that even exist to the present day have their foundations in this passage. And it's very interesting that this passage alone shares what the rest of Genesis will come out of. Isn't it interesting that we see God now starting to work with Abraham in just the next chapter to make a people for himself that ultimately the Christ would come from this line of Shem in the midst of a story that the nations are dispersing. They're walking away from God and there's a completely uh, uh, depraved mindset behind mankind and his pride. And yet God speaks. And so we see here that we have the large view of God in dealing with the nations, and then we have more the minute, which we'll get to in chapter 12, in how God begins to work with one man. It's awesome to see his ultimate plan unfold here in where they wanted to build a name for themselves, that they were going to stay in one place, they were going to do this, they were going to do that, and God says no. But notice his no while it certainly can be seen here as judgment, is also full of grace in a million ways. Like I said before, isn't it interesting that he didn't just destroy them? That he didn't knock down the tower? There's no record of it anyway. It just stopped. He didn't, he, he simply confused their languages. God ultimately knows that for them and for us, that it is a worthless pursuit to make a name for ourselves. Why is that? Because God knows that there is no one greater than him. And while some would look at this and say, what an egocentric God you serve, what, what a, 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 a central selfish individual, until you look at him until you realize in all of his glory that there's no other name under heaven that we by which must be saved. There is no other name that is worthy of exaltation than God himself. There is no other one that is worthy of building a name for himself than this mighty God who has not just given that glory to himself and to his son, but ultimately is calling us to join him in that that he's redeeming a people for himself, that he's calling us out of our own depravity and our idolatry towards something greater than ourselves. And the reason that this is so important is because the gospel just pours out of chapter 11 of Genesis after this point. Not that we haven't seen it before, but it just starts to explode at this point. And why? Well, let me explain a few things by way of application. First of all, we see not just God in his character here, not only the pride and depravity of man, but ultimately we see that every tribe, tongue, and nation is represented here in chapter 11. We know that God's ultimate plan is to take his message to the nations, nations that still are in the, uh, from, from the very seed form of what we find here in Genesis 11 today. And why should that be exciting to us? Well, God is making a name for himself among the nations. 
how foolish is it even as Western Christians to think that God is simply making a name for himself amongst us. But he is drawing, as the scriptures say, some from every tribe and nation that he might make his name known. As the waters covers the sea, as Habakkuk says as well. So what joy ought to come from this? Well, here's a few thoughts by way of application. First of all, where do we find ourselves in this passage? I think all of us find ourselves in this passage. First of all, we can relate to those in Babel. We enjoy building things. We enjoy doing things for our own glory. We enjoy building that which would bring a name for ourselves. Talk to our young people who are worried about what they're going to do with their lives. Why is it that we focus so much at the end of high school on what we're going to do rather than who we, who we are? That God is working in us a character so that we can become what God is setting before us, not just what we do. Most men, as we gather together, you ask the first question is their name, and then after we get to know each other, we ask, well, what do you do? It's the identification of what we do that is essential of our own psyches, that we think that this is what matters most. And God is saying it's not. And so oftentimes when we consider what it means to bring glory to God and building God's kingdom, are we simply building a brick pile? When God is calling us to take those bricks and build something by his grace and through our lives in our generation to his glory and for our good. Secondly, is our life characterized by the pride of Babel or the humble patience of God that is also shown in this passage? That are we characterized by pride and arrogance in what we want to do and how we want to live our lives, what we want to major in, what money we want to make, the decisions that we have for our lives, the dreams that we want to have, rather than God's passion? In fact, we know that we can't truly find comfort or enjoyment out of life unless we are following after God. Right here in the text, we would think that, oh, God is stopping what they're doing because he's a cosmic killjoy, but it's actually for their good. He wants them to disperse. He wants them to accomplish. And what greater creator, what greater planner, what greater builder is there except God? And so we see here that his humble patience is calling us to correction and calling us to look to him and what he would have for us in our lives. Thirdly, are we seeking to make our name great? Are we seeking to make his name great? As I've said before, there is no one more worthy of being exalted out of our lives than Christ himself. And it doesn't mean that we're necessarily called to go to a foreign country to be a missionary, but maybe. Don't excuse that. Start there. It may not mean that we're called to go into ministry, but maybe he is calling you to do that. But most of the time, he is calling us in the ways that he's gifted us and the ways that he has put us together to use the talents and the gifts that he has given us to bring much praise to him primarily. And we also find great fulfillment and joy in that because it's not our focus, he is. Lastly, this thought of how we are holding on to the gospel ourselves. It's very interesting to notice the themes here seem to be repeated in the New Testament. Now, we don't have direct um, commentary on this in the scriptures, but I find it interesting by way of observation that the early church, Jesus said what? Go to the nations. Start here in Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, and then where? To the uttermost parts of the world. And what did most of them do? They went to Jerusalem. And they stayed in Jerusalem. And they stayed in Jerusalem. And they stayed in Jerusalem. They were, most of them at the very foundation were Jews. So we're staying home. We're staying comfortable. We like our food. We, we don't like foreign people. We certainly don't like Gentiles. We are staying here. And what is it that happens? We see a great persecution arising in the early chapters of Acts. And what happens? They're, they're expelled out into the nations. 
And it's through this very truth, it's through even Rome that had created an amazing transportation system up to that day. He's using things that are logistically uh, impossible to, to previous generations, that the gospel is now able to spread, and he takes his people and he puts them everywhere. He sprinkles, sprinkles them all over the face of the globe, and the gospel goes forth. Don't ever underestimate what God is doing around you and in your circumstances. You think about what this means for people that have left Syria after all their, their belongings have just crumbled to the ground, that God is sending them elsewhere. What is God doing through that? What is he doing through war in the sense of what we're seeing in Ukraine and how he's accomplishing his purposes and putting people where he needs and wants them to be and what he wants them to accomplish. The same thing is true in our own lives and our own circumstances. God brings things in our life to position us for what he would have next for us, not for our sake to make a great name for ourselves, but for his glory. In other words, all of life becomes a display and workshop for the Lord that he is working these things for his uh, own glory and for, again, our good. And so do you believe that? Do you believe that God is using these things that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth? And so where does that rub? Well, what's awesome about this, that even in the context of Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit arrives, what is the first thing he does? He brings the ability for them to speak human foreign languages supernaturally to communicate one thing. Isn't that awesome? The gospel. He brings the ability supernaturally to overcome the very curse of Babel and the first thing people hear is the gospel. It's incredible to see to see how language itself is gifted to us by God, but then at the same time to see that he reverses this, that we might speak the same language. And what is that language? God's language of the gospel. That the gospel goes forth. It's the only thing that penetrates the very uh, fruit of Babel. And so we see here not just this, but we also see a tale of two cities, Babel, and we see the promised land and ultimately the new Jerusalem. We see the, the very separation that we are headed in one direction or the other. Are we headed towards Babel, which is uh, the foundation of man's uh, depravity and man's making a name for himself, or are we headed to the celestial city that God is building himself and that he is making for his citizens? And so we see that even in the context of Roman, I mean, uh, Genesis 11, that we see God's glorious work in our lives. But where are we finding ourselves in the work of God? Do we find ourselves working against him or are we submitting to him because he is worthy of our worship? Church, we see here that there is no other name that is worthy of being made much of. We see here in this text a glorious truth that God is making his name great amongst the nations and he's doing that through the gospel, through his son, Jesus Christ, and through his shed blood on the cross. Are you here this morning? Maybe you have never looked to God and his sovereign plan in your life. Maybe you are finding the bitter results of your own sin and depravity. That you are finding yourself on a course that is in a collision course with God's plan. He loves you so much that he would put roadblocks in your life, just like he did with language here in Genesis 11. So he's putting roadblocks in your life today. Even the preaching this morning, God is using to guard you from your own error that you might turn from it and look to him. How awesome it is to see his grace here in this passage that he's calling us to himself that he wants us to have a greater goal, a greater vision, a greater future, because it's his future. It's his glory. It's his name that's at stake. And lastly, are we idolatrous? Are we ones that would seek to change the glories of God for idolatry, to build, again, our own kingdom rather than a kingdom that is glorious and has a great future? Are you, church, heading that direction? Are you finding encouragement on your way to the celestial city or grieving that the remnants of Babel are yet unfinished and you must pay attention to it? 
What are you building? Who are you building for? And what is in a name? The name that you serve is your God. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you. We thank you for this passage that uh, really is a hinge passage before we look at your great work in Abram's life, calling him out. And yet, human history finds its origin and, and change here in Genesis 11, but we also find ourselves here, Lord. We see ourselves here. That in our own pride and arrogance, we can walk away from you. Or we find, on the other end, that you have come to us. You have come down to look at what we are doing. You have come down to see our condition. And Lord, you have acted. And Lord, that's exactly what you did in coming to us, sending your son to us, born of a virgin, living a perfectly sinful, sinless life to show us that we are sinful and you are our savior. That you, fully God and fully man, were able to be a mediator between us and to reconcile us to God. What a joy to know that you took our sin upon yourself, that you exchanged our sin for your righteousness. What kind of God is like that? What kind of God is so caring and so gracious and so loving as to pursue sinners that don't even want to be around him, who want to make a name for themselves? God, we are overwhelmed that you called us out of our own pit of mud and called us to yourself. God, thank you for lifting our heads. Thank you for making us new creations in Christ. Oh God, we know even at this time that you would use this passage in our lives for good. Perhaps for us to consider the nations, that this message needs to go, that we're called to spread out and not just keep this for ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would help us in this way to think about our lives in context of your plan, your redemptive purposes in the lives of people around us. And God, would you save many? Would you show grace to us and help us to not commit this great sin of Babel in looking to ourselves and building our own kingdoms? Have mercy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.